The sunny sky was smiling when the river turned to blood. The pantry's full of frogs and all our nostrils full of bugs. With the boil on my thighs, clouds of locusts hit the sun. There must have been a why, but I don't see a smoking gun. But so it goes. So it goes. And it might not help to know, but so it goes. Well, the devil and the angels played a game to test the weak. The devil bet on reason. Bet on me, so now I'm naked as a newborn, and I'm laden with disease. There might have been a why, but I feel like the guinea pig. But so it goes, so it goes, and it might not help to know, but so. So it goes, and in some way I'm not alone. And so it goes. Well, there you are, and welcome back to Redemption's Table. And here we are in the dog days of summer. We just heard the first half of So It Goes by singer-songwriter Jay Lind off of his The Land of Canaan album from 2021. Three weeks ago, Jay joined us here at the table. And if you haven't heard his episode, I encourage you to go back and give it a listen. And I also encourage you to check out more of Jay's music. I just want to say thanks again, Jay, for sharing your songs with us here at Redemption's Table. The second verse of today's song, So It Goes, highlights the Old Testament story of Job. Off and on throughout the summer and into the fall, we are listening in on a six-week series from 2021 shared at a midweek worship service called Broken Worship Gathering. When these recordings were originally released, we had been in pandemic mode for a little over a year. And this exploration of the book of Job seemed especially fitting for where many of us found ourselves during that uncertain season. Now this week, we will cover Job chapters 15 through 22, when faith soars outlandish. Let me just say, this Job event contains some of the most visceral teaching I have ever been involved in. I had previously felt and I was currently feeling a lot of similar angst as Job was at the time when these messages were shared. For Job's struggle was like a tailor-made suit. There was no sugarcoating his frustration with God and his defense before his four friends, and I use that term friends very loosely, his defense was real. These are the kind of conversations we ought to hear in the family of faith. Unfortunately, a holier-than-thou spirit often squelches such honesty and authenticity as Job demonstrates here. 
So thanks for tuning in. Let's get started. You will. I hope you brought your Bibles, Job chapter 15. Pray with me one more time. Father, breathe. Help us just to be still and let you breathe in and through us. Speak in your name, I pray. Amen. Tonight we're going deeper into the heart of the book of Job. And we cross over what I believe is the continental divide of the book. We're going to cross some colossal mountain peaks tonight. I've got competition now. Uh, I don't know what kind of bird that is. That's pretty cool. Uh, and tonight, all three of Job's friends speak a second time. It's kind of like they speak, Job responds. They, the next one speaks, Job responds. Each of them are giving their second speech, and I don't know about you, but their second time around did not sound as nice. I don't believe they're there for Job anymore. Now, to kind of speak up for them, it, they could have already walked away, but they don't. But I don't think they're there for Job anymore. I think they never have been. I think they're there to be proven right. They would rather be right than concede. Now, again, I'm grateful for them because they stir it up. They stir up in Job the opportunity to answer their accusations, their thoughts. And because of that, we have some incredible diamonds rising up out of the depths of Job in his response. You read these chapters and verses. I've encouraged you all along look for diamonds. I found only two this week because they were so colossal, the two that, that jumped out at me, and I'm really interested in hearing yours uh, because a diamond's not just something that, oh, I'm not looking for certain things. These are parts of verses or verses that speak directly to you, where God speaks directly to you. So there's no right diamonds. Uh, so I'm looking forward to the time when we get a chance to, to share. Let's get started real quick with the second speech of Eliphaz. And uh, I'm just going to kind of skim over this because that's what I'm supposed to be doing is skimming over the top of this. Eliphaz speaks, verse 4, he says this. He says, uh, but you even undermine piety, Job, and you hinder devotion to God. And the first thing I gather from what Eliphaz says here in his speech is this. The religious can't handle such transparency as Job is exposing in his comments, in his vent, in his frustration. And because of verse 4, it tells me that Job is rocking their theological boat. Uh, he says, you undermine piety. You hinder devotion to God. <laughs> Eliphaz is so sure of his religion, sure of his theology. It's essentially the one, the theology that all three of them have. Be good and God will bless you. Sin, God will punish you. Be good so that God will bless you. Be good so that he'll bless you. Worship and make your offerings and go to church so you can keep God at bay. You can back him off and uh, he'll leave you alone the rest of the week. Here's the deal with all three of these guys. Uh, if obedience that Job has lived, if obedience is not a guarantee of health and wealth, then what happened to Job might happen to us. I think that's what's running through their minds here. I mean, he's got to be wrong because he wouldn't have had 
his life bottom out as bad as it did. So the religious can't handle such transparency like this. And the second thing I see in Eliphaz, we've been gentle with you, but you're obviously a sinner. Verse 11, he says, are God's consolations not enough for you, Job? Words spoken gently to you? God's consolations as we've interpreted them to you. I'm afraid conversations like this are more the norm when the one in the depths is not heard by the ones in the shallows. Job's friends are hearing with their ears, but they're not hearing with their hearts. And therefore, they do not hear at all. It's almost like they're missing everything he's saying. They're not taking anything he says into account. And then finally, just Eliphaz throws up his hands at the end of his little tirade here. Verse 25, uh, well, kind of in the middle of it. He says, you're attacking God. You're not attacking us, you're attacking God. You shake your fist at God. He shakes his fist at God and vaults himself against the Almighty, defiantly charging against him with a thick, strong shield. Wow. Job's hurting. Job's lost his children. Job's body is hurting from the disease, the boils that have come upon his body. And this is what he's getting from his friends. And Job spends two chapters responding to Eliphaz here. First five verses of chapter 16, he indicates to them, I would be more merciful to you than you're being to me. Uh, you're not really being very gracious with me. My mouth would encourage you, verse 5 says, comfort from my lips would bring you relief. Yet if I speak, my pain is not relieved, and if I refrain, it does not go away. In other words, damned if I do, damned if I don't, I've still got pain. He turns from speaking these first six verses to his friends, and then he speaks to God. Surely, oh God, you have worn me out. You have devastated my entire Household. All was well until you unleashed all this upon me. Job speaks more truth here than he realizes, than he knows at this point. We know the story. We know why all this happened. He doesn't. Yet in verse 17, he says this, yet my prayer is pure. <laughs> all this has been unleashed on me. My, my prayer is pure. Pure. My hands have been free of violence. My prayer is pure. Let me just say, that is a hard, difficult place to remain centered when you're going through something like this. And, and it's been hard for him to do so. But he, but he keeps gravitating back toward that center. And then, wow, here comes diamond number one. Verse 19 of chapter 16 even now, my witness is in heaven. <laughs> my witness is in heaven. My advocate is on high. My intercessor is my friend. As my eyes pour out tears to God. My, my witness is in heaven. My advocate is on high. My intercessor is my friend. He's putting his trust in God. Even now, even in the midst of all this, I know I have an advocate. I know I have someone who will defend me. 
He makes this colossal statement and then as he enters chapter 17, verse 2, he says, Surely mockers surround me. He's looking at the, the response he's receiving from his friends after making the statement. Surely mockers surround me. My eyes must dwell on their hostility. I think when Job said that, I think he was getting dagger eyes from some of these guys. Yeah, they're getting real squinty-eyed with him. Uh, when you speak with such transparency as, as Job does, there will always be some religious folks, religious quote-unquote, who are disappointed in you. Always. I mean, because some of the things that Job is getting at, how dare anybody say that in the context of worship or Bible study? Like we get so offended. Job goes from the height of 1619 to the depths of 1711. He says, my days have passed, my plans have shattered, and so are the desires of my heart. Verse 15, where then is my hope? Who can see any hope for me? Job is... I'm going to use another analogy here. Job is surfing, and Job is surfing big waves. He's out there surfing on the breakers of faith. That, by the way, is an intentional, an intentional double entendre. He's out there surfing on the breakers of faith while Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar are judging his performance from the safety of the beach. Well, wow, what you just said, Job, I give out a four. Minus two. <laughs> Three, maybe I'm being kind. If you've ever watched a surfing contest, you know. Anyway. <laughs> well, there's the first go round. Here comes the second one. Bildad, second speech of Bildad. Verse two. He says, when will you end these speeches? Be sensible and then we can talk. Why do you regard us as cattle? Why are we considered stupid in your sight? He's offended, isn't he? Perhaps his feelings are hurt, but he's also enraged. This is a blistering speech, this chapter. He's about to unleash a hellfire and brimstone sermon upon Job. He insinuates, he calls Job wicked, verse 5. The lamp of the wicked is stuffed out, snuffed out. He calls him evil, verse 21. Surely, such is the dwelling of an evil man. Verse 21, he also says, you don't even know God. Such is the place of one who knows not God. Wow. Wow. After this backlash, Job responds to Bildad. Bildad's words evidently remind Job of the way he, he actually feels he's being treated by God. Because he starts out, verses 1 through 12, and I'm just going to read this entire chapter. It says, Then Job replied, How long will you torment me and crush me with words? Ten times now you have reproached me. Shamelessly you attack me. If it is true that I have gone astray, my error, error remains my concern alone. In other words, it's my business. 
You're judging my relationship with God. You don't know what's going on between me and God. If indeed you would exalt yourselves above me and use my humiliation against me, then know that God has wronged me and he's drawn his net around me. Though I cry, I've been wronged, I get no response. Though I call for help, there is no justice. He has blocked my way so I cannot pass, God has. He has shrouded my paths in darkness. He has stripped me of my honor and removed the crown from my head. He tears me down on every side till I am gone. He uproots my hope like a tree. His anger burns against me. He counts me among his enemies. Verse 12, his troops advance in force. They build a siege ramp against me and encamp around my tent. Now just pause right here. And I don't know if Job said that last bit with a sense of humor or if he was being sarcastic. But you hear what he's saying here? He, he's saying, uh, God has unleashed all of his armed forces against me. God has unleashed all his arsenal against me to capture little old me shivering in my tent alone on top of an ash heap. <laughs> He's surrounded my tent. I'm the one he's trying to capture. God, do you think you might be guilty of overkill just a bit? Maybe. Verse 13. He says, uh, He has alienated my brothers from me, God has. My acquaintances are completely estranged from me. My kinsmen have gone away. My friends have forgotten me. My guests and my maid servants count me as a stranger. They look upon me as an alien. I summon my servant, but he does not answer, though I beg him with my own mouth. And by the way, I'm still paying him. <laughs> my breath is offensive to my wife. <laughs> I'm sorry, that's a little funny. Get some mouthwash, maybe. I don't know. I am loathsome to my brothers. Even the little boys scorn me. When I appear, they ridicule me. All my intimate friends detest me. Those I love have turned against me. I am nothing but skin and bones. I have escaped with only the skin of my teeth. Have pity on me, my friends. Have pity, for the hand of God has struck me. Why do you pursue me as God does? Will you never get enough of my flesh? Now, in those verses, he's already said God has backed out on him. He feels like God has backed out on him. Now he's saying, my friends have backed out on me. If you feel certain that God has backed out on you and you think every living person on the planet, because he describes a lot of different people, have backed out on you, then who's left? Pets? <laughs> I've always wondered why a dog is man's best friend, but a woman's best friend, a lady's best friend is a diamond. <laughs> that seems a little... Anyway, we'll go. <laughs> He's in a deep, dark pit. And yet, something incredible is about to happen. Job is about to become, if you've ever seen the movie, he's about to become Forrest Gump, <laughs> running down that dirt road to escape the bullies. You remember that scene where that leg brace that has kind of held him back all his young life suddenly just explodes, starts disintegrating, starts coming apart and suddenly, run, Forrest, run! And he runs and suddenly discovers that's his niche, that's his thing. And that's what's about to happen with Job. He's about to have that, that brace in his heart come apart and he's about to <coughs> soar with some incredible statements of faith. 
man by the name of Elliot Wright wrote a book many years ago called Holy Company. And in that book, he has one of my favorite quotes of all time. He says this about saints. He's describing saints. And I would include Job in that category. He says, saints are those who hobble toward holiness. Well, there you go. I think that defines discipleship. I think that defines following Jesus. We're hobbling toward holiness. Not perfect, not without personal doubt, not without internal and external persecution. Yet they continue to walk, sharing their insights and giving themselves as they go. That's what he's doing here. Job is about to soar and he's about to unveil what I think may be. We still have 21 more chapters to go, but I think this might be the, the diamond of diamonds. Now remember where he's coming from and all he's been through. Remember where, what he just stated. I've got clowns on the ground with me, joker in the sky. Here I am, stuck in the middle with squat. And yet he says this. Verse 23. Oh, that my words were recorded, that they were written on a scroll, that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead or engraved in rock forever. It's as if Job knows what's about to come out of his mouth is, is huge, is important. It rises up within him. And what he's saying here is, write this down. <laughs> write this down. And every word that he speaks right now is emphatic. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand upon the earth and after my skin has been destroyed yet in my flesh, I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I am not another. How my heart yearns within me. I know that my Redeemer lives. Now, many theologians consider Job the oldest book in the Bible. It's not older as far as history goes because we know that what happened in Genesis and beyond, that's the beginning of all time, the beginning of history. But it's just like because it's like one of the oldest manuscripts. And yet, even at this point, I double-checked, Redeemer has not even been mentioned in the Bible at this point. And yet he says, I know that my Redeemer lives. There's been no mention of a Redeemer yet. Job speaks these words hundreds of years before Jesus came to this earth as our Redeemer, before Jesus was crucified to die for Job's sins, my sin, your sins. Hundreds of years before Jesus came out of the grave on resurrection morning and defeated death forever. And yet Job, in dire straits from the rock bottom of what he's going through, says, I know that my Redeemer lives. He's there. He's alive. And that in the end, he will stand on the earth. Gosh darn it, I hope he comes. Is that what he says? No, that's not what he says. He says, I know he will come. In the end, when all is said and done, he will come and he will stand upon the earth. Again, this is colossal. This is huge. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see God. I may be nothing but dry bones but I'm going to see him. I may be nothing but a shriveled up mummy. <laughs> I myself will see him, not another. I'm not going to be receiving this second hand from anybody. I'm not going to miss this. I'm going to be there when my Redeemer shows up. 
I know all that is wrong now is going to be made right. I know all that is broken now is going to be made whole. I know all that is unknown and hidden now is going to be made known. I know that what seems lost now is going to find its way back home. I know this. My heart yearns within me. Wow. That's outlandish. The subject tonight is, is when faith is outlandish. This is outlandish. This is colossal. Job, does, Job, Job doesn't know it yet, but this is probably the pinnacle of his suffering right here. Job has risen from the ocean floor to the top of Mount Everest when he says these words. Verse 28, he says, if you say how we will hound him since the root of the trouble lies in him, He's talking to his friends now. He said, you should fear the sword yourselves for wrath will bring punishment by the sword and then you will know that there is judgment. Just as suddenly as Job's tsunami of faith rises, it subsides. There's no gloat after he makes this statement. There's no dance on top of Everest. There's no spiking football in the end zone. There's no in your face. There's just a quiet message of warning. And when Job picks back up in Job 21, you would almost not even know that these words were ever spoken. When faith soars outlandish like this, it has a longer drop to follow on the other side, emotionally, maybe even spiritually, when or if God, our Redeemer, does not respond as quickly as we hope he does. Therefore, our faith must be in, I know that my Redeemer lives. And not in the fact that we just made this incredible declaration. Because it is possible that someone could say something like this in order to goad God into acting. It is one thing to say, I have faith in God. It is another thing to stand pat, no matter what, with the resolve, though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. Uh, we looked at that two weeks ago, Job 13, 15. At this point, if I'd been one of Job's friends, I think I would not have had anything else to say. I think I would have followed this with another seven days of silence. If I'm halfway smart, that's what I would do. And I'm not sure I'm halfway smart. And it's obvious so far it's not. Because he speaks. And you're like, what is he going to say? How's he going to respond to this? If he says anything, it ought to be, whoa. His second speech is so far, chapter 20. He begins a little more eloquent than the other two. It's a smarmy, smug eloquence that quickly gives way to hurt feelings. It's like evidently Job, what Job just said, landed a jab on Zophar, because verse 2, he says, My troubled thoughts prompt me to answer. I hear a rebuke that dishonors me. <laughs> oh, Zophar's been dishonored by this colossal statement of faith. Zophar recognizes Job's lofty faith, and he attempts to poke holes in it. Go down to verse 7. He says this, he says, 
Verse 6, he says, though your pride, though a man's pride reaches to the heavens and his head touches the clouds, he will perish forever like his own dung. You hear what he's telling Job? You're full of it. Your faith is caca. If you were Spanish, you'd be shot right now. That's why I didn't use the other word. One thing I noticed, Job's, or excuse me, Zophar's second speech, you know I've been counting questions. This is the first speech of all of those who speak where there are no questions. I think that's very telling. He doesn't want to hear anything else Job has to say. He's not interested in hearing from Job as he unleashes yet another hellfire and brimstone sermon. He essentially informs Job, just like the other two, you're a sinner, you're wicked, you're evil, you're godless. Chapter 21, real quick. Job says, verse 3, bear with me, guys, while I speak. And after I have spoken, mock on, donkey Kong. <laughs> That's not in scripture. I just threw that last two words in there. Mock on. He says, mock on. Keep mocking me. Is my complaint directed to man? Am I complaining to you? No. Guys, I'm not complaining to you. I'm complaining to God. I'm just asking God, why do evil men get off scot-free? As you read these next few verses, that's the gist of it. Verses 6 through 26. It's like, what's the deal here, God? Why do you let the wicked alone? Why don't you let some people who want nothing to do with you get by with that? Why don't they seem to have any problems? Why do they get to enjoy their prosperity without you bothering them? What's the deal? Now, you, might have you might never have said anything like this before. Maybe you have. I would kind of bet on the side that, yeah, I bet you have. I got a brother in Christ, his name is Doug Johnson, and he has been my friend for 30 years. And Job right now, a couple of weeks ago, he, he had a stroke that was caused by uh, medication. He shouldn't have had the stroke, but he's been unconscious, struggling for his life the last two weeks. And I know Doug. He's a couple of years older than I am. I've seen his life. I've seen his testimony. He's a good man. He is a godly man. He loves Jesus. He loves the word of God like few I've ever seen. And I texted this to a friend the other night. I'm just going to share it with you, what I texted. I said, Doug follows Jesus with his whole heart. I trust in the sovereignty of God. Texted this to a friend. I trust in the sovereignty of God, but I could think of a few old skanks God could remove off this planet before he removes one of his choice servants. Aren't you glad I'm not God? It's kind of like, God, I got a hit list for you. Hope that doesn't surprise you. That I think that way sometimes. May it should surprise you that I don't. Job is thinking that same way. That's in the same line with what he just said. He ends the last few verses as if he's resigning. 
to his friends. He says, I know full well what you're thinking. So how can you console me with your nonsense? Well, the devil and the angels played a game to test the weak. The devil bet on reason and the angels bet on me. So now I'm naked as a newborn and I'm laden with disease. There might have been a why, but I feel like they're guinea pig. But so we go. So it goes, and it might not help to know, but so it goes, so it goes, and in some way I'm not alone, and so it goes. While sweating in Gethsemane, I prayed one final prayer To find the crack in everything The truth within the dear Now I'll take up this old cross To see just how much I can bear There might not be a why But I don't know, I don't care So it goes, so it goes So 